Shanti, Shanti. Om, may Brahman protect us all. May nourish us all. May we work together with great energy. May our study be vigorous and fruitful. May love and harmony dwell amongst us all. Om, peace, peace. Peace be unto us all. So I almost felt like not speaking after the song. We could just sit here and meditate. <laughs> Meaning and substance, that's what I'm talking about today. It's dear to my heart because it's the very fabric and heart of the Vedanta and the mechanism of the Vedanta, how this Vedanta works. It's pretty awesome, really. Very elegant and very simple. And because of that, it lends itself to the whole world. It lends itself to what's going to be coming in the world in the near future because of the combining of religions and this tossing and turning of the world and all the confusion. This is waiting in the wings as I see it, this idea, these ideas of Vivekananda. <clears throat> and as I've worked them out over time, I am always stunned at the inclusiveness of them, that they really relate to our modern world and to each one of us. And so I'm going to try to do this in this talk and see how meaningful this philosophy is. Let me quote a little from Swamiji first. He says, What is mine but the ceaseless inquiry into the meaning and mystery of life? Isn't that our mind? We may say that only the uncultivated people are going after all these things, but the question is still there. Why should it be so? The Jews were asking for a miracle. The whole world has been asking for the same these thousands of years. There is again the universal dissatisfaction. We make an idea, but we have rushed half the way after it when we make a newer one. We struggle hard to attain to some goal and then discover we don't want it. This dissatisfaction we are having all the time. And what is there in the mind if there is only to be dissatisfaction? What is the meaning of this universal dissatisfaction? It's because freedom is every man's goal. He seeks it ever. His whole life is a struggle after it. The child rebels against law as soon as it's born. Its first utterance is a cry, a protest against the bondage in which it finds itself. So this is what Swamiji tells us, that we're all, as it were, I think we've been to movies where you start bursting out crying. I have, even a grown man like me. But uh, because it touches that larger part of ourself. And we see not only that larger part in a mo some movies, but we also see what, how far away it seems we are from it. And so it touches us powerfully. It does it to everybody. And that's really the magic of everything in this world when it wakes us up. It's because it's always, we, we feel we're falling short of this ideal and we're always out in the world with this dissatisfaction, running here and there. Well, what Swamiji is also describing here thus is a very large, inclusive philosophy, psychology of life. It's a universal psychology, as we're going to see. It's apply, it's working in all of our lives every moment. Okay. And he's always struggling, Vivekananda always struggled to take these things out of ancient India and the old Vedas and put them in the modern world. And he struggled again and again and again and again, and it got clearer and clearer. And as he did that, he left us a beautiful legacy. 
but he worked with evolution, the challenge of science and reason, psychology, the three gunas, all sorts of things. But he was trying to find out foundational ideas, and he did it in this, this aspect of his universal psychology. One aspect of it we're going to be talking about today, meaning and substance. See? We're always looking for meaning. All of us are hunting for it. And I'll say it now, and we're always looking for an ultimate meaning. Whether we know it or not, it's driving all of our lives. And what is that? Peace, love, and freedom we're going to see. We want to be peaceful. We want to be loving. We want to be free and independent. This is the hunger of every soul. And this is the heart, at the heart of Vekinanda psychology. And it's the, at the heart of all this momentum in our own lives, this drive we all have to reach out into the world and accomplish something. We'll go into it as we, as we proceed. But this is one of the great contributions of transpersonal psychology and modern Western psychology as well. And that's why it lends itself, the two systems, the ancient metaphysics of India and these old Eastern ideas and the philosophy there and this new philosophy of not only transpersonal psychology, but the more rudimentary psychology, Freudian psychology, Jungian psychology, Adlerian psychology, it all fits in beautifully. We're building, what has psychology has done is to build a bridge, a beautiful bridge helping us to understand these Eastern ideas. And what does it have to do with meaning and substance, which is the title of this talk today? These Eastern ideas that are so powerful in the Eastern ideas. What Freud and his contemporaries did, whether we know it or not, is they, primar they, they gave us primary definitions and understandings of the mind. These are primary definitions and understandings of the mind that have taken root in our consciousness here in the West, and we take them for granted. They're there. We take them for granted. But they've become a part of our civilization, and they also fit in beautifully to the Indian civilization, that old civilization there. So the two are becoming more and more alike. This is the more superficial presentation. And then India with your Patanjali and other people, they gave, gave us an in-depth analysis of, okay, the superficial uh, psychology is there, but there's this in-depth psychology that explains the driving force behind the whole universe. That becomes very exciting, you see, because then you can draw upon this whole range and spectrum of insights and understandings that have evolved through humanity over the thousands of years. So new ways of thinking. This is what has gained momentum. And uh, the, the, the point is that our minds are always seeking out greater meaning, greater meaning, greater meaning in the world. As we see the evolution of this world, it's nothing but this consequence of the human soul's hunger to render greater meaning in the world. That's all we're doing. Cell phones and all of these things, they're attempts to address this urge we have within us to find greater meaning in life. We're running around on the surface, you see. And so this is one of the observations of modern psychology. This, this urge towards greater, greater meaning. It's not the special do domain of psychology. But it, because it's endemic to life, everything has been being driven by this hunger for greater meaning. It runs through history. 
For instance, the spirit of America lends itself to this. I think many of us understand that when they come here to this country, they're, they're, they're quite, they, they stay for one great thing, the legacy that America holds, which is freedom. You come here and you can jump around in a larger context. In other cultures all over the world, you can't do that. It doesn't lend itself to that. So America has this wonderful thing of seeking greater meaning. It wants to find greater meaning in life. And we're open to that, see. So this greater meaning is there in all of our sciences, our technology, but modern psychology sheds light on it in its own way. This greater meaning in life that's driving us. It says that whenever we render greater meaning in life, a very curious thing happens. Whenever you become more meaningful in your life, and you understand life a little more, and you know it very well because each and every one of us have done this, whenever you do that, the very substance of your mind changes. Something opens up within you, and you become a little stronger and a little more able to cope with life. When that meaning hits you, it could be anything in the external world, learning some skill, like QuickBooks, which I hate. <laughs> it's an accounting program, as I mention often. But the more I've learned it, the more it has given me freedom. And the substance of my mind has changed. What does that mean? I'm more equipped to deal with the world. Something magical has happened within me. Okay. And this is what psychology tells us again and again, that the very substance of our mind changes. It said that in Eastern philosophy and psychology as well, but we, we're, we're now developing it slowly. But this is psychology 101 in the West. Change your attitude, work in a new way, and your mind changes for the better. It opens out. If you don't, and if you remain in narrow negative ways and allow those to possess you, your mind won't open out. It'll contract and uh, sour on you, see, because the mind tends to sour, because it's been being driven by this magnificent reality behind everything, the divine. So when we don't allow it to expand, it sours on us, and we turn sour and hurtful and miserable inside. So we have to keep practicing in spite of ourselves this act that Richard was talking about, love and loving. Keeping the heart open in spite of ourselves, being cheerful and happy in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that our mind wants to close down on us and say, nah, it's just terrible, everything is terrible. No, then you just turn around and smile and say, no, everything is wonderful. And I'm going to allow these larger thoughts into consciousness. And then you take a deep breath and you allow big ideas and feelings into consciousness, especially in those times, not when you're happy, but when you're unhappy. Even when you're happy. But when you're unhappy, you turn around and tell your mind, no, that's nonsense. I'm not unhappy. I'm not miserable. I'm cheerful and I'm going to smile. So this is part of the discovery of modern psychology. The mind changes. And, the, and psychology tells us this isn't God's grace. This opening up process and the manifestation within is indigenous, indigenous to the mind. The mind has magic within itself. We don't have to turn to God to do this. That was a great accomplishment, and that's the great accomplishment of science. Science is always going deeper into nature and telling us, this is just what is there already. It's causing everything to unfold and move and change and, 
and these are the chemical properties of life, and by understanding them, we can explain this and that. So it all works from within. And this is the great gift of modern psychology and, and science. So psychology tells us the process is indigenous to the mind. Neurotic ideas give up a neurotic idea that's unfounded, narrow, and small. And automatically, what happens when we give up a neurotic, narrow idea? It's well established. Consciousness expands. We become stronger and better. We become more equipped to deal with life. That's why people go into therapy. They feel more peaceful. They feel more loving. And they feel more free. So we're going to see this theme running through the talk today. Because that's all there is in life, folks. As Woody Woodpecker used to say, that's all there is. So you know, those of you who have seen him, the old, it's an old cartoon. In this, we were raised on it as kids. So you'd say, that's all there is, folks. So anyway, the point is, in some mysterious way, um, uh, there's an opening up process, a transformation in consciousness that's going on, and it's well established. It's no longer a secret or a taboo. So many people go into therapy and come out feeling better and stronger, and consciousness deepens and becomes more mature. That's the whole idea. But you see, even after healing ourselves, in light of these techniques in psychology, healing and transformation doesn't stop. So you can, be, you can clean up all your neurotic issues. But then a larger psychology emerges. A larger problem emerges. Okay, we're healthy and more adapted to life and we can go out and accomplish more things. But this psychology comes in and, and says, in spite of overcoming our neurosis, we continually want to clarify consciousness even more. See? The beauty of this Vedanta, as I'm saying, is that a lot of people come into spiritual life needing healing on a whole level, uh, of uh, a whole series of levels. And Freudian psychology, Jungian psychology, Adlerian psychology, and others, they clean up a lot of stuff because a lot of people come into this world and pick up a lot of debris as their kids, a lot of debris. And so that debris has to be cleaned away before we can look at this larger psychology. And so this larger psychology allows for it. It says, yes, do it. Because what we're talking about in this larger psychology is this peace, love, and freedom. That's what religion is all about, you see. But in order to get at it, clean up the debris and go into therapy and cry and weep and look at all those parts of yourself that are arrested and frozen and unable to move. And let go of them and release them and become bigger and better and stronger. Then when you turn to spiritual life, you're equipped to do it. Okay? You have the power to do it because you're not arrested and frozen all these old ways. So we say in this, in, 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 in this Vedanta, in this Vedic spirituality, go for it. Go into therapy and everything, but don't let the therapist tell you this is all there is. That's all you need to do. Don't let them fool you into thinking, oh, you know God isn't there and all you need to do is this and then go out into the world and enjoy, you know, <laughs> with their great authority. No, no, that's all nonsense. Go in there and get them to support you. All you need is a loving soul to smile at you, some innocent young person who doesn't know any better, but <laughs> they've learned their psychology 101. <laughs> and you could dump all of your problems on them, see? Because all you need is a loving soul there who will listen to you and will allow you to express yourself. And then after that's all over there, go back into your own life, into your own spiritual practice, you see. 
That's all that's happening. Anyway, even after healing ourselves, healing and transformation doesn't stop. That's the whole idea. And it goes on and on. And it isn't a question of neurosis anymore. It's an existential need. It's a common urge everybody has to expand, to broaden. The animals have it. The plants have it. The Vedanta says the whole universe has it. We want to broaden our lives, our understanding as humans out, and our understanding out into larger horizons. So, but this Vedanta says what generally goes noticed, thus this is what generally goes unnoticed in psychology. This ongoing process of human expansion. And this is why transpersonal psychology has come into existence. Because transpersonal psychology says, yeah, the Eastern ideas are legitimate, you know. And so let's, let's look into those and find out why it is once neurosis is, is addressed, we have this larger urge, and it's, test, it's testified down through history. Just have to look at history and see this hunger of humanity and all the philosophers and thinkers. So it's this human expansion. Same as neurosis, it's just something deeper within the psyche is now seeking expression. Same process, but on a larger level. So, now we're going to ask a question. I'm going to ask a question now that we've sort of built a foundation. The question is, how and why does consciousness change on a larger scale? Or even, why does it change on a neurotic scale? Why, when you go in and the person loves you and looks into your eyes and you share all these deep problems with them, suddenly the problems fall away? Why is it? Is it because that love they gave you? It is. But it's also because there's something magical inside of all of us that allows us to expand. What is it that allows consciousness to change on all the scales it passes through? Now, here's the big issue and the big element that Eastern philosophy and metaphysics introduces into the process. It says, if we're just bodies and minds and nothing more, it, it is certainly mysterious. See, if we're just bodies and minds, we can't explain how and why these changes take place. There's no way to explain it. It's like Henry Miller. He says, life has to be given meaning because of the obvious fact that it has no meaning. See, that's, the, that's our philosophers, our big, deep philosophers in the West. It has no meaning. It's heavy. It sounds very heavy and weighty, but really it's <clears throat> pointless. See? It drives us into insanity. Life has no meaning, and we have to run around rendering meaning to life. See, body, our bodies and minds, as bodies and minds, how can we extract a larger meaning out of life? Just as bodies and minds. Think of it. It's tremendous limitations here. Muhammad Ali says, what you see is what you get. See, they all say it, all thinkers in the West and people in the West. But somehow this model of life doesn't prove true that we're holding in the West. doesn't appeal to a deeper part of ourselves. The magic of this world, going to any church or temple or mosque or whatever it is, and there's, they're asking you to find some larger dimension in life. We instinctively rebel against anything less. We may be emotionally healthy, strong, successful, but we remain profoundly unsatisfied. We instinctively want to embody a grander meaning of love, beauty, and freedom in us. We all do, even the atheist. 
Even the atheists hung, hungers to do that. And the religions of the world, this is, what, this is what they all promise us. All the religions. What's distinctive about this religion of Vedanta is that it opens the process up so that all religions are included. That's pretty magnificent. Not only does it do that, it opens it up in such a way that the whole history of humankind, all of these psychologies and therapies are open to it, free to enter into this Vedantic model. So, uh, these here are principles that seem to transcend our body and minds. How can we extract love, beauty, freedom out of these bodies and our crazy minds? See, we're all insane. We know it. You know, when we're off by ourselves, we're all crazy. And yet there's a part in us that says, no, I'm not crazy. And we insist that we're not. We're all in the same uh, situation here, all of us. Now, it's impossible to explain things with our bodies and minds. And this is where Eastern philosophy and thought comes in. The whole academia is stumped otherwise, see? The whole of psychology is stumped stumped and walks away confused. They're all confused. They don't really know why this magic occurs. Why our larger existential behavior, mysterious higher urges, the manifestation of the world's religions, why? Why this constant need and urge on the part of all of us to expand and grow and get better and wiser? Why the evolution of society? These are all questions that Vekinanda looked at knew instinctively as an old Rishi, and gave us the answers to. But you see, all this is occurring around us, and modern science doesn't know the answer. It's trying to reduce everything down to matter. Modern psychology doesn't know why, and it's trying to reduce everything down to the mind. Impossible. You can't do it. So the Vedanta says there's no mystery here at all. These principles of expansion and transformation are working on a larger scale as well as a smaller scale, because we're not just our bodies and minds, we're much more. We're essentially infinite spirit. There are no boundaries to us. We're all loving and we're ever free in our essential natures. Each one of us. Okay? Thus, the whole point of Vedanta is religion is endemic, endemic to life. It's endemic there. It, it's working through everything in spite of everybody, in spite of the atheists. And just with psychology, there's a maturing of consciousness, a freeing up of the mind from neurosis, you see, that we can become mature uh, adults in the same way on a cosmic scale. Within a transcendent context, there's a freeing up of consciousness on a profound level. So here we're building an argument, you see, for a universal psychology. That's what I'm trying to do here. Usually... As I told them up in Santa Barbara, and I look out over you, and at this, by this time I've usually told two or three jokes. The reason I do this is because I can look out there and everybody's eyes are glazing over, as I told them. <laughs> so then when I see the eyes glaze over, I know I've lost the audience, and then I throw in a joke and they come back to consciousness, you see, understandably. Because what I'm telling you here is heavy-duty philosophy, too. It's something that took me a whole lifetime to figure out so that I don't expect you to assimilate this right away. And I'm very pleased whenever I give this part of the talk and I can look out there and everybody's present and they're hearing <laughs> what I have to say. So I, I applaud you for that. 
So here we're no longer entering into this realm of balanced individuals, but there's a profound peace, love, and feeling and freedom that's emerging in consciousness. And we're now dealing with mystics, saints, sages, incarnations, and prophets. But it's the same process, you see. It's the same process, but now, as Vedantins, we've opened the whole thing up to the whole world. So as Vedantins, we're free to draw from the whole panoply of human uh, aspiration and inspiration. We're free to do that. And we're encouraged to do it. Now, if you go to other religions, the traditions generally say, no, 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 you can't do that. We have a tradition here, and you fit into our little box. See? And as Vekinon said, if you don't fit into this box, we're going to cut you up so that you do fit into our little box. Meaning your soul is being broken, you see, and you're compromising yourself. So this Vedic spiritualized says you don't have to compromise yourself. You don't have to bind yourself because that same urge that's in you is in everything and in every religion. And look at all the religions and you'll see they're doing nothing more than that. Peace, love, and freedom. That's all. There's nothing more there. There's no hidden secret. They'll put it in different languages, but it's the same good, healthy old urge that's rising up in all of our consciousness because we're that divine reality. See, this is the model that explains everything. So we don't we don't see this underlying expanse of spirituality, and we don't see this ultimate unity. We only experience the surface stuff, but it's there in the background driving us, urging us on. So the whole secret of this Vedanta and all religions, you see, is to calm your mind down. Pull away from the world. Okay? Let go of the world. Don't try to find peace, love, and freedom in external things. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. <laughs> no matter how young you are and enthusiastic and powerful you are, go out there and conquer the world. You're not going to feel find that peace, love, and freedom that your soul hungers, even if your name is Alexander or whatever it is, or the name of a president of this United States, you see, or something. It doesn't work. So, we, we, we want to pull away from this world and allow this expansive reality. Our mind starts healing. Just as in therapy, it starts healing. We'll go into that a little more. But the world on the surface and these surface energies is chaotic and uncertain. Is it not? Of course it is. And because of that, we're walking around in a state of tension. And then you go into the whole idea of the chakras. India worked it all the way through. I'm always amazed. The Indian mind, that's all they did in India, you see. <laughs> Not really. But they gave the best of their minds to thinking this thing through. And when you think it all through, you're shocked and amazed. Whenever you poke any of these parts of Indian philosophy, you see how it's very coherent and consistent and ultimately falls into this larger model. So a world of uncertainty and chaos on the surface. Three people are visiting Tijuana, Mexico from San Diego. While there, they go shopping, and the wife buys clay kitchenware. Well, as they return to the United States, a custom official, official asks if they have anything of value to report. Not really, the wife replies, digging in her bag with the bean crock she's purchased. 
The two other people freeze, freeze as she continues, I only bought a little pot. <laughs> Not this kind. <laughs> you smoke one kind, you know. And the other, it's a little pot. Like So naturally, I went down to Mexico and bought a little pot, you see. That's <laughs> what a lot of people do. <laughs> well, anyway, there's this uncertainty that's always there on life, you see. We're always getting starts and jumps. Where's my cell phone? Did I leave it home? Did that person go? These are not good, you see. <laughs> They're not good for us. They're not healthy for our nervous system. So let's look at this larger psychology. Now we're going to step into it as we have a framework and see how these two forces, this larger awareness that's transcendent reality and its energy, which is all of us and everything we see around us, are at, are at work throughout restoring our lives to an ultimate certainty. We're gaining an ultimate certainty. See, there are two fascinating things that are happening with all our lives, whether we know it or not. One, this underlying divine reality is rendering its meaning to all of its substance and energy. See, now we're going into heavy, heavy metaphysics, but it's very simple. I've told other people this, and once they get it, they say, wow, that is really beautiful. All this is the energy of Brahman, of God, of that peace, love, and freedom. We're not separate from it. A lot of people say we're not the body and the mind. You are your body and mind. Yeah, absolutely. Come on now. You know you're this body. But what Vedanta says is there are only little waves on the surface of what you really are. And what you really are is peace, love, and freedom. That's your essence. And so if you want to externalize into this body-mind complex and try to manifest your peace, love, and freedom out here in the world, go ahead and try. Good luck. You'll fail. You see. But if you want to pull away from this world... And find your peace, love, and, and freedom. All of this energy, well, your energy is going to evolve. Your mind is going to start to evolve. Because when you put that larger awareness, see, what is meditation really? A lot of people wonder, why am I meditating here? This is crazy. See? It's not doing anything. But the vipassana of Buddhism is very good as well. But the whole point is this. As we breathe, calm our consciousness and start looking at the mind for the first time and not looking at the thoughts in the mind and running after them. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. Let's do this, let's do that. But you sit there and you breathe and you become aware of your insanity, which is what it all is, and you breathe and you start witnessing the whole process. Why can you do that? How is it that you have this power? to sit there and watch your mind go crazy on you. It's because you're this larger awareness. You're this bigger awareness, this piece. And as you allow that to enter into your mind more and more, it heals it. See, any time you introduce a thought, a larger thought in your mind, it, it's going to throw out all the lesser thoughts if you keep pushing with it. If you keep holding on to that thought, positive thought, it's going to push out all the negativity in your psyche. What does that mean? You're going to say, no, 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 I can't do this. No, no, this is impossible. No, that's not right. This is right. Because we're used to thinking in, an, in a constricted way. And you just say, no, that's not the case at all. I am free. I am loving. I am cheerful. Okay? Okay? And the mind will say, no, 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 we're not cheerful. We've got all these reasons not to be cheerful. No, we've got all sorts of reasons to be cheerful, and I'm going to be cheerful. Thank you. See? 
So you see how this introduces, but what happens is that allows a greater awareness into consciousness. And that awareness itself is what's transforming us. I can go into it, and I will in other talks, but the very fact that you become aware of things in larger ways or become aware of them and their limitations transforms them. It renders a larger meaning into all of these things. You sit there and you say, wow, what a stupid thing for me to think. What a pointless approach to life. Why are you saying that? Because you're peaceful, loving, and free. And you can see the limitations and the silliness of the thought, the pointlessness of that thought. Somehow you, you have that gift within you. Each one of us does because of that underlying peace, love, and freedom. So it's impacting everything, this larger awareness, and causing the mind and everything else to change, <clears throat> open out. Two things, so those two things are happening. One is that all this energy, whenever, here is, a, I hope I get this clear, put it clearly to you, because it's a tricky thing. All of this energy is rendering its substance back to this expansive divine reality. Now just think of this, so you can understand a real basic process of transformation that's going on. Ordinary therapy says, if we overcome a neurosis, come in, sit down, and let's work this thing out. And if we work it out as aware beings, we reown that repressed energy. See, it's repressed and unresolved. What happened in your childhood created real havoc in your life. So now you're sitting there allowing that into consciousness. And when you do, when you become aware of it due to the love of the therapist, it's okay, look at this. And that stuff comes into consciousness. And then what happens is you reown this energy. Now that's the grand mystery. But I, nobody knows how it happens, but they have the terminology. Somehow you reown it. Ah, oh, I'm not lo oh, no longer draw, driven by this stuff. I reown that confused energy. Where did it go? Went back into awareness. Awareness's energy was divided out and externalized. And now you're reowning it. Your awareness is reowning it. You've got to understand that because that's part of this basic psychology. Psychologists have no grasp of how we reown this energy. What reowns it? The mind. What? The mind doesn't reown it. The mind doesn't reown it. The mind is crazy throughout. But what reowns it? Whenever you do let go of it and you take that deeper breath after six months of therapy and you've cried out all your confusion. Suddenly you're more aware. Who has reowned that energy? Your own transcendent nature. Now you're more transcendent. You're more gifted. You're more aware. You go into the world a stronger person. You have reowned that energy as a divine being. Okay. It's very important that we understand that. This because this is the heart of psychology. This is the heart of it. And once the West understands this, we can understand why when you go into a church and you pray and you open your soul, and changes start to take place over a long period of time, you're reowning that energy, all that existential confusion that was in you. Oh, life, life is too much. So you sit there in front of Jesus or in a temple or wherever, wherever it might be, and you breathe and you calm yourself and you open yourself up to Krishna. And you allow that energy into you. And you're becoming aware of Krishna's beauty and strength. Okay? And you're starting to say, no, 
there is strength and beauty out here. And you re, you're starting to reown that stuff within you. Krishna is there all the time, you see, but now you're looking at Krishna, at Rama. And now as you're aware of them, you're starting to let go of all the crazy existential insanity that's in the mind. Okay? It's all there. And it's being let go of. And this is going on in nature. It's just when we do it and we speed it up this way, it gets better and better and quicker and quicker. So, all of this, the whole thing is the whole universe is but a play of transcendence, this ultimate meaning, this ultimate reality, as it works on and transforms all of its energy. That's all that's happening. You can't get this model within Psychology 101. You can't get it there. It doesn't work. They don't know why. You can't go to your physicists. You can't go to the men who analyze the brain, and they'll tell you. They don't know. But this Eastern philosophy makes it very simple. It's awareness. It's owning all of this unresolved energy. It's becoming clear expressions. That's what evolution is all about. Nothing more. And there's a way of explaining that. So this is our larger psychology. And today's talk, meaning and substance. You see, the meaning that this transcendent reality is giving to life as it owns all of its substance. There's another issue here. I know it's lingering in your mind. How does it start? But we won't go into that now. <laughs> we can't. But anyway, it starts off. It crystallizes and hardens and gets frozen into this universe. And then it evolves out. It evolves up. It's the, 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 everything starts merging. And intelligence starts, starts to emerge. And everything starts to... And higher life forms start to emerge. See? How? Because there's this ultimate meaning behind life, and all its energy is the energy of that meaning. So as that meaning impacts on its own energy, it evolves. Simple. It's really simple. And it becomes very obvious once you think of it. So, rendering meaning out of everything we see, this is what we want to do. Rendering this deeper meaning. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> I'm looking for a joke I have. <laughs> So then confusion dissolves. This is how your confusion dissolves. Why is it that a Christian gets their confusion dissolved? Why does a Muslim get their confusion to dissolve? Why does a Hindu? Why does a Taoist? Why does this? Why does that? doesn't matter what it is. Because things get better because we introduce those larger thoughts. We're introducing larger thoughts into the mind. And as you look at them and you become aware of them, they change all the lesser thoughts that are crying and screaming on inside of you. So then you walk around now a Taoist. You see, you're very strong and very present and very aware of life. That's all that's happening. Now, you, when you do it as a devotee and you love God and you get into the passion of that, as Ramakrishna tells us, you develop a love body. In other words, you're going to become aware in and through this love body. And you're going to have a relationship with Krishna and you're going to dance and you're going to open your heart up. And when you die, you're not going to open out into this ultimate reality as a, a jivan mukta, a liberated jiva. Rather, you're going to be a child of Krishna for as long as you want. You're going to have this subtle body. and But you're free. You're free now too. And it's a wonderful way to go, you know. Either that or if you're a Christian, you go up to these heavens or whatever it may be. But if you genuinely clean up a lot of the stuff that's there in the unconscious, the ground unconscious, as our transpersonalists now are talking about, which is this existential stuff, the ground unconscious, 
then we're free. And that's all this is about. Okay. So it's all very pressing and immediate, and our behavior is generally not pathological neurotic. It's existential, very personal pressing. There was a southern minister, and he was completing a temperance sermon. You know what temperance is about, drinking. You know, Here in the West, 50 years ago, we were very nice people, just like in India. They're very nice people now, and they're probably losing it too to some extent because the world is going through a lot of havoc, the whole world. 50 years ago in America, America was a very moral place. It was struggling to be very moral in its own way, in its own confused way with a religion that kind of limited us. So temperance was one of the things that we did. Don't drink. See, If you're going to serve God, don't drink. So the southern minister was completing a temperance sermon. With great expression, he said, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd take it and I'd pour it in the river. He said, he said, and with every and with greater emphasis, he said, if I had all the wine in the world, I would take it and I'd pour it in the river. They're all listening intently. And he said, finally, he said, if I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd take it all and I'd pour it in the river. Sermon complete, he sat down. The song leader stood up very cautiously and announced with smile, with a smile for our closing song, let us sing hymn 263, Shall We Gather at the River? Is <laughs> where we're at, you see. It's okay. It's a-okay. Persist in everything. <laughs> In spite of it all, you see, in spite of it all, we, we, we're driven in our existential confusion out into this world and with all these smaller solutions. very hard to sit down, calm the mind, and look at the mind and allow greater meaning into it. Okay? You don't have to do anything. You can think of Krishna if you want. That's good because you know you're doing something very positive. But the Buddhists get away with this too. How do they get away with it? It's because they just stare at the mind. They're aware of the mind. And that very awareness heals and transforms. Now you're sitting there. Oh, what a crazy... Oh, you know, and all this stuff is going on, but you're making a space in your consciousness. And then that larger piece, leaven, freedom, enters in. It's all that's happening. It's all that's happening. So this whole thing is very subjective and very pressing for all of us. But we know we can somehow mature and open up. Here's a quote from Joel Patrick Warnick. He says, see, this is where people are now. All of us. The point of clarity, I realize, at point of clarity, I realize that my life on earth is meaningless. Okay? There's no meaning to life. That's a tragedy of the modern age. Because you see, this religion is so powerful in its presentations and the encouragement it has. And the way it allows us, as I see it in the future, we have to embellish these places. And, and what I see, Temple Universals, what Vekananda spoke of, with the whole spectrum of human evolution in there, all the religions. If you know any billionaires out there with $10 million, because that's pocket money to them. So if you know any billionaires out there with $10 million, we'll start a temple. In it, you'll walk in and you'll see the whole spectrum of human evolution there. No problem. 
You walk in and you see one thing in there that touches your heart and opens it. That's your magic out of your personal evolution. Another person walks in and sees something else. Christ or Confucius or Buddha or this or that or Moses. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And their heart, your heart opens up. And the magic or Krishna or Rama or Shiva. And your heart opens up and the magic enters into your consciousness. That's all that's needed. And then you become, you start becoming a magician. You start committing your life to this larger life. And if you're in this kind of environment, the whole environment is telling you, listen, this is what we've been doing throughout our history. The whole human panoply of histor- historical struggles and everything. Bathe in it. Open to it. Be inspired by it. And then you turn this over to the large creative minds in the world and you have a place where you can sit down quietly and open your heart and soul and transformation can really take place. Because everywhere you look, that's what the Catholics are smart at, you see. They're very smart. In India, too, the temples. Catholics are very smart. You walk in there and everywhere you look, there's something that's going to open consciousness. It's going to remind you of a transcendent state. Protestants are good, but you see, they're kind of dull little places sometimes. <laughs> There's not anything in there. God bless them because they were austere. They saw this ultimate reality and wanted us to look at that. So this Vedanta is open to the whole spectrum. So Joel Patrick, when he says, at point of clarity, I realize that my life on earth is meaningless and that I am merely a pawn in a bigger game, a game I cannot possibly understand or have control of. Thankfully, therefore, Thankfully, before depression sets in, I drift back into my cloudy, bewildered daily routine. This is the problem of the world and the tragedy, the poetic tragedy that's going on today. A lot of young people, you've got to capture, that's what religions do, they're very smart. You've got to have an environment that captures people's imagination. And today it has to be very broad and open and inclusive. So when that young person who has no point or reason to live anymore walks in there, they look everywhere and they say, my God, and something will strike them. And if not any one particular thing, the whole place will strike them. And they'll say, wow, you know, maybe there's something to all of this. And then they find meaning in their lives. And their lives don't drift, you see. They don't drift and spend the rest of their lives trying to find answers in science or in ordinary psychology. So, quotes, we're running out of time, and I want to hear some more music from Richard. Uh, Here's another quote from a French seismologist. It says, Everywhere one seeks to produce meaning, to make the world signify, to render it visible. We're not, however, in danger of lacking meaning. Quite the contrary. We're gorged with meaning, and it's killing us. All these lesser meanings are killing the young people, too, especially. They're dying out there, drifting around, trying to find meaning in their lives, reaching out into empty corners and trying to pull something out of dry dust, you see, which is really what this world is. So, it's all superficial. And here is another quote from a psychologist. There is no meaning to life except the meaning man gives his life by unfolding his powers. Now, in a true sense, that's true. Eric Fromm said this. But I don't know if he had a larger metaphysics. But but this is what we're talking about. 
Once we understand our potential, it unfolds. Jung put it this way, as far as we can discern, the whole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light of meaning in the darkness of mere being. Very, very important that we have that. Because it's all otherwise remains subjective, personal. But in this subjectivity, if this Vedanta got out, we'd see that in this subjectivity, there's this ultimate objectivity of this ultimate reality. And I've got more quotes, but I'm running out, and I want to just pull away. Let's see. Here's just one more little joke. Loosen us up, because you've had enough. I've beaten you over the head with this enough. But it is beautiful, you see. And there is something beautiful waiting in the wings here, which is our places of universal worship. Where, I, as I say, young people walk in there, and they're struck by the authenticity of history, the history of all of humanity. And then their hearts can cry, and they can cry, but for genuine reasons, not watching some silly movie, which speaks to us, but doesn't speak deeply enough. So a man is sent away to a state hospital for the insane. After he's been there a few weeks, a fellow worker visits him and says, Hello, how are you getting along? He says, I'm fine. Glad to, glad to hear it, says the visitor. I suppose you'll be coming back to work soon? What do you mean? I'm living here in this big, fine house with this beautiful garden. You're asking me to go back to work in a mill? Do you think I'm crazy? <laughs> See, he had been sent away to a hospital. I'm sorry, that has to be emphasized. Do you think I'm crazy? So once we get to the spiritual life and we open up to it and we identify it, do you think I'm going to go back to this world in the mills? No, no, no. I'm not crazy anymore. I know something is happening in my life. Something new and wonderful is happening in my life. So again, if you have any millionaires out there, if you know any billionaires, we're not talking millionaires or nothing nowadays. The Sufi put, here, let me end it with this quote. The Sufis say, the purpose of life is to unlearn what has been learned and to remember what has been forgotten. Okay? And Victor Hugo says, there are moments when, whenever, whatever be the attitude of the body, the soul is on its knees. Isn't that true with everybody? And finally, the peace pilgrim put it this way. Communicating with God is a deep inner knowing. See, that awareness. I don't care if it's Christ, Krishna, Christ. you're suddenly aware that there's some meaning in life that's big. That God is within you and around you. God speaks through that still, small voice within. Thank you.